0: that'll work. Should I turn it towards me a little bit more? Well, good evening. Good evening. It's good to be here. Uh, been looking forward to this weekend. It would be just as easy, I guess, to sit down and let someone else talk. But uh, I was asked to have this topic, this session, and it's become very, very interesting. Observation, reading the Word. When you read God's Word, this, what happens? Do you just read it? Do you think about what you're reading? I want to challenge you tonight to observe what you read when you read the scriptures. If you're reading a novel or something and the part gets very exciting and keeps building up to the climax, you just can't wait to get to that point where it just tells you everything that it was building up to. And, you know, that's, you've been observing what was taking place in this whole story as it leads up to, you would say, the, the pivot point or the, the most important point. And so tonight I'll, want some of you to help with some of the answers too I'm not going to do all the talking when you think of observing something what are you doing you're seeing it. okay you're seeing it all right anyone else paying attention. Oh, okay paying attention to what you see right taking it in. pardon taking it, in. taking it in very good I like what happened in Christ after Christ resurrected. Peter and John ran to the tomb, right? Peter went in and looked. Later on, John came in and said the other disciple went in and he saw. Now, if you look at that word in the Greek, it means he comprehended or he understood. Oh, okay. Sit there and hold that in, John. <laughs> so, see, when, when you read the scriptures, like for instance, King James where it says that John went in and saw, you think, well, yeah, he saw it. But when you try to observe how he saw it, it kind of sheds a little bit a little, you know, a little bit different light on it because he did more than just see it. He comprehended it, and when he comprehended what took place, truly, Jesus had risen again. And the words that Jesus told them before began to ring a bell or connect the dots. You remember some of the disciples, they were a bit confused or a bit, how you would say, they they had a hard time grasping what took place during the resurrection and even after that. Okay, the definition I come up with is an act of recognizing and noticing a fact or an occurrence. If you're observant, you're paying strict attention to something. Not just gaze, not just looking at it, you're paying strict attention to something, right? So when you read God's word and you're observant, you're looking for what would you be looking for? Okay, and that's probably what you're going to be sharing more too, Chad, is how to apply it. I call it nuggets of gold. When I'm reading the scripture, I'm looking for something kind of special. I'm looking for something that's below the surface. And, you know, I really appreciate what Brother Mel encourages us to do, and that's to read the Bible through every year. And I've read the Bible through, and then there was a time that Rachel and I took the whole Bible and read it out loud. And took smaller portions of scripture. And it's like someone once said. If you want to hear God speak to you. Read his word out loud. And it's interesting. Because you know like I said. I'm, and I'm not belittling at all. What Mel encouraged. In fact I think it's very good. To read the Bible through. But when you sometimes take a portion of scripture. 10 or 20 verses. verses and you read it out loud. Like my wife and I. You begin to say. Oh wow what does that mean? Or what was the setting? Or you know what was, what was taking place during that time. Uh, sometimes we have a, a habit, may I say, of just taking a verse or so out of the scripture and kind of thinking about it, and not really knowing what the setting was, who all was there, and what was taking place during the time that that was taken, you know, was happening. So, if you do this, take time, like you would say, when you read the scriptures, and. If you're by yourself, you don't have to read out loud to yourself. But like, for instance, if, if those of you who have a wife, if you want to read them together, you can do that. And my desire would be that we could encourage each other this weekend like Paul encouraged Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. What does that phrase mean, stir up the gift? Anyone? If you stir up someone's gift, what are you doing? Okay, very good. Motivating. There's a Greek phrase in there. (laughs) And, you know, if you want to study the scriptures, again, Hebrew Hebrew is your Old Testament. Greek is your New Testament. Uh, It sometimes really sheds a whole different light on it. So what it really means of stirring up the gift is to fan the fire. Now, we have a wood stove in the basement. I can go down there late in the afternoon and barely see any coals there, right? Well, all I have to do is take the poker and stir them things around. Or if you'd have a fan like they used to, you know, fan the fire, it'll flare up in a matter of seconds, very short time. And you can start a whole new fire. So Paul is really telling Timothy, stir up the gift of God that is in you. Fan the fire. You know, Timothy didn't need a whole new set of gifts, spiritual gifts or revelations. What he needed was courage. And self-discipline to keep on doing and proclaiming the truth that he had started to proclaim. He was a young minister. And Paul was like his tutor, you would say. Paul was helping him. So God doesn't need to give us a whole set of gifts. What God wants us is to have the spirit of fear. But, you know, no, don't have the spirit of fear, like it says there in verse 7. God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. So that's what God wants to give us. And then the key verse that I would like to use for tonight is 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What should we observe in this verse? Paul is telling Timothy to do what? Study, right? Okay. If you want to get good grades in school, what do you have to do? out the window and watch the tractors and the trucks and stuff go by? Hmm? Huh? Say it a little louder? No, oh, go on the medlin. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what do you have to do if you want to get a good grade in school? Study, right? Put your heart to it. Make it happen. So you have to study. Study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And it means cutting it straight like a carpenter would cut a piece of wood straight or a mason would cut a straight edge on a piece of granite or something. So we need the gift of discernment, allowing the Holy Spirit to direct us as we study to show ourselves approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed when we stand before God. May we be workmen that don't need to be ashamed. And that's what Paul was trying to encourage Timothy to do. Work. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill your life. And we need to search. We need to observe the word and stand on the truth. In Psalm 119.18, it says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Asking God to open our eyes so that we can understand what is in here so we can observe what the scriptures are really saying and we can observe how to apply it <clears throat> also Psalm 119:27, make me to understand the way of thy precepts so shall I speak of wondrous works it's really asking God to open excuse me open our mind and open our hearts to the things that he has for us Lord help us to observe and to understand as we read your word there again, like I would say, look for the golden nuggets under the surface. I would like to read a few verses in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verses 103 through 105. How sweet are thy, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So there we see that again, as we uh, allow God's word to penetrate into our hearts and our lives, it, it, it illuminates our path. And it's like someone has said, you can be in a dark room if you turned all the lights off here in here. How much of a light would you need to make a difference? Not very much. And yet God's word, illuminates us and as we read God's word and we observe what it says, it enlightens our 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 knowledge. It enlightens the truth about God's word and it makes it become clearer. Okay, I also like to read a few verses in Proverbs two, verses one through six. So by reading like it said there in Psalm 119, we get understanding. And Proverbs two one to six also talks about that. So Proverbs two verse one my son if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee so that thou incline thine ear listen, is what you're doing incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hidden treasures then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. So, what do we get when we study the scriptures? What do we get when we listen to what God has to say? What do we get when we apply our hearts to what the word says? Anyone? There's three things here. Wisdom. Wisdom. Good. What else? All right. Wisdom. Knowledge and understanding. All right. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of my God, I will also forget thy children. I'm not sure. This was some time ago. There was a couple here young couple I don't know where they're from I only remember them being here one Sunday morning but what happened after church I don't think I will ever forget because you talk about understanding the scriptures and what happens they were back there close to the water fountain after church I went back and I introduced myself and started talking to them and I don't know what brought us to this point of the conversation but I'll just share what happens when we look into God's word and try to find out what it means Or why is something where it is in the scriptures, right? We're looking for the nuggets of gold. We're going to observe what the scripture has. In the course of the conversation, the lady said something about that verse that says the iniquities of the fathers is passed to the third and fourth generation. And then I forget what the rest of the conversation was. But that verse stuck out to me. And I said, hmm, I wonder where that's found. So I went back home, got out my concordance, and I looked up where it's found. Now some of you know where it is because I've told you that before. Bill, where is it? Alright? It said in the Ten Commandments, which which book and chapter? Exodus twenty. Okay. Exodus twenty is where I saw it, and it just kinda really may I use the expression, kinda blew my blew me away a little bit. Because the Ten Commandments, we usually see on the wall, and there's Ten Commandments there, and I'll just go through them. Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Number five. Number six, thou shalt not kill. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And number 10, thou shalt not covet. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, and it starts out there in the Ten Commandments, and then we go down to verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 5. It talks about you're not, in verse 4, you're not supposed to have any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above and that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then this lady said something about the iniquities of the fathers are passed to the third and fourth generation. And right here it is. Verse 5, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, speaking of the graven images, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And guess what? How often do we stop there? And we say, oh, I am the way I am because of my dad. I am the way I am because of my grandpa. And this thing has been passed on from generation to generation. And all of a sudden, I looked at the next verse. Look at it. This is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. After this person said that, you know, the iniquities of the fathers is passed on from, and the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, third and fourth generation, Verse 6, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. You know what I said? Wow. Seriously. The next time somebody tells me that the they are because of what they are, because of what they happened or what happened, and, and there are things that can be passed on from generation to generation. And I think what God was really telling us or Moses was telling us here that the children were involved the the, the, peop- the parents and grandparents were involved in idol worship and that got passed on from generation to generation. sometimes we use the what I call the loser's limp I am the way I am because of and now I'm not into football but I've heard some people explain a little bit if this guy's got the ball and he's running for the end zone to score, and he knows the guy behind him is going to catch him before he gets there. Guess what he does? He pulls a muscle, on purpose. It's called the loser's limp. He falls down, and then the referee says, "Oh yeah, he couldn't make a you, know, you, know, you know, he couldn't make his score because you know he fell over. He pulled a muscle in his leg." So God forbid that we should use the loser's limp. God's mercy is there for us and will help us through different situations in life. I would uh, like to read Psalm 103, verse 17. Psalm 103, verse 17. Again, speaking of God's mercy. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. God's mercy is there for us, we can experience forgiveness. Psalm 85, I'm sorry, Psalm 86, verse 5. For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. So God gives us the open invitation. Jesus says, "Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest." God wants to release you with His mercy and His forgiveness, and He wants to give you a new life. Satan wants to keep wants you to keep uh, wants to keep you in bondage, but we can re, we can experience deliverance through Jesus Christ. That chain of blame from bondage, the chain of the I'm sorry. The chain of blame and bondage can be broken when we read God's word and we look for those special things that he has for us. You know, uh, like I said, when you when you think about the, what it said there in Exodus 20 and then he kept on with the Ten Commandments. And I thought that's interesting. And then here a few weeks ago in our Sunday school lesson there in First John, it talked about, you know, how we love each other, we love the brethren and God loved us. And if we don't love God, we you know we can't love our brother. And then all of a sudden there in the beginning of that one chapter, I could probably go to, I think it was four, it talked about test the spirits. I thought, now that was interesting too. And then after that, he goes back and shows, you know, talks about God's love to us. So how do we test the spirits? We test the spirits to God's word. This is a true thing. I'm sure some of you have heard me say this too, that someone who works at the bank does not study the counterfeit. They study the real thing. And then they can identify the counterfeit. So that's what we are to do. We are to observe God's word. And we'll learn tomorrow how to apply it and so on. And make it a part, make it uh, real for us. So when we read God's word. We look for the golden nuggets. I'd like to look at a character in the Old Testament. I wasn't quite sure how far I should take this as far as observation. But I found this very, very interesting. The life of David you want a very, very interesting book, you read the book called David by Philip Keller. Philip Keller wrote a number of books, about the 23rd Psalm and so on. Okay, I'd like to look at David, Israel's second king. Saul was the first. Though David had some very, very difficult experiences in his life, he was passionate and still had purpose to do God's will. Now, I'll admit, and we all know, that David was human, and there was some times David messed up big time. But I would like to look at the relationship between Saul and David and observe. Because, you know, as you read that portion in, in 1 Samuel, we don't have time to go through it. But I was reading portions of that the last day or so. I didn't have work to do. So I was just going back and reading some of the things that happened between Saul and David. And then I had that book, too, I was making some reference to. And I'm thinking, wow, the difference between these two men. All right. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king. All right. As Samuel looked at Jesse's son, what did he, what did the Lord tell Samuel? You remember? Anyone? Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. What are you supposed to do? Someone finish it? For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Thank you, Jonathan. When we see that and we observe what God wants instead of what I want or what I see, it makes a difference. When I first meet you, I kind of make a, an impression or I kind of have, how you would say, a first yeah, first impression of what, what you're like. Maybe by the way you shake my hand or the way you say something or the way you handle yourself. They say action. Sometimes body language is, speaks louder than words. So I, 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 my brain makes a, a picture or a, an idea of what, what you might be like. God says, don't look at the outward appearance. He told Samuel, when you go down there to Jesse's place and he has all his sons go in front of before you, don't look at the outward appearance. Look at the man's heart. God looks at the heart you might be looking at the outward appearance. So the oldest son comes in, Samuel's walk, looking at him, and he thinks, surely this man's strong, he's been working out, you know, he's you know, not just physically, but I mean, he's been busy, he's working out, he's physically strong, he should be the one. What did God say? Nope. So Jesse's sons come by Samuel and thought, surely this, you know, one of these should be. What did Samuel say to Jesse. Are all your sons? What did Jesse say? Hmm? John? Got one more. Where's he? Well, he's out there in the back 40, taking care of the sheep. Bring him in here. The Bible tells us that David was young and ready looking, which means very, he was looking healthy, too. He'd been out in the sun. And Samuel said, that's the one. Anoint him. So he anointed him. And Samuel looked at Jesse's son, and he says, like, don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature, but God is looking at the heart. David is the one that I want. Did you observe what God sees from his word as he looked at his chosen one? Then in 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen, after Samuel anointed David, it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon David, from that day forward. I thought that's pretty awesome. Did you ever observe what the next verse says? <laughs> See, we're here to look into God's word and to comprehend and to observe instead of just looking at one verse, let's look at the next one. It's quite a different picture. The next verse says, verse 14 1 Samuel 16:14, but the spirit of the Lord and an evil spirit from the Lord touched him Saul. God allowed an evil spirit to touch the life of Saul. Did that change his personality? Most certainly it did. And we're going to look at some of those changes tonight. When I see what happened between Saul and David and i I had heard some of this stuff before but just having this whole thing refreshed in my mind and I'll be honest, observing in a different way, more in depth of what really took place I I just, there again, it was one of those wow moments when you look for the nuggets of gold under the surface, brothers they're there Saul, because of his spirit his troubled heart And while all took place, he became a very, very, how you would say, ungodly, emotional, in a negative way, type of person. So he would call David in to play, David would play his harp, to try to calm down Saul's anger, calm down Saul's emotion. And as what David was playing his beautiful harp and the tunes, what did Saul do? tried to kill him, had a javelin, did that at least twice, he tried to kill David, here David's trying to help Saul, and Saul's trying to kill David, and you know, then he sees that, you know, David's doing quite well, and Saul at times, you know, like I said, threw his his javelin, and Saul becomes very angry because of David's popularity later on, what was one of the greatest things that David did to, you would say, elevate his popularity, who did how did you do that with a whole army stone and a sling one man isn't that something against this giant and then the girls and whoever started dancing and making a joyful noise and celebrating this great victory and what happened to Saul boy his temperament changed in a hurry didn't it his whole how he would say complex or whatever he, he, he became very angry because of David's popularity so what are you observing right now in this scenario what do you observe in Saul's life I gave you a few clues okay Right. It, it did get him a lot of attention. But one thing I see is jealousy. Saul became so jealous of David's popularity. The people said Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his what? Oh, well, that hurt like a sword, didn't it? Saul was supposed to be the king. He was the king. And here David, this little shepherd boy who just killed a, go- a giant, is gaining more popularity than he is. So jealousy. What else? What does jealousy cause? Starts with H. Hatred. What's behind jealousy and hatred? Pride. Whew, boy. It wasn't going well for Saul, was it? So jealousy, hatred, and pride will ruin your life. Saul's jealousy angered or just raged against David. Saul tries to find David and kill him. Well, first of all, we see even when, when David was preparing to go out to face Goliath, what did Saul say? David, there you are with your shepherd's coat on it, probably sheepskin or whatever, and you got your sling, you look pretty silly. I mean, here's a man of war all his life. And you're a little shepherd boy there with your sling and you let's dress you up and at least make you look like one. What did David say? I forget the word it uses there in King James, but it said he put Saul's armor on and it just didn't fit. I mean, it was clumsy and you know? he was trying to make Saul's armor armor work. So when you observe that, David says it's not going to work. I need to use the gift that God has given me in my hand. What is in your hand? Well, the best thing we can have in our hand is God's word. David had a sling, and so he used it to God's honor and glory. Anyway, Saul comes out there, and he tries to kill David. One of the first times there in 1 Samuel 24, verses 4 to 10, we're not going to read it, Saul is in a cave. How many men does he have with him? Anybody know? Did you ever observe that? Anyone? Take take a guess. What, Stephen? 50? Uh, A little bit more than that. How many? Oh, put another zero behind that. Saul had 3,000 men. 1 Samuel 24. He was in the cave. Guess what? Who else is in that cave? Who? David. David and his men. Probably not near what Saul's garment looked like. But can you imagine the next morning David comes out and says, Saul, look what I got. Whew, looks like part of my coat. <laughs> yeah, check it out. I was close enough to get you. Saul was sorry for what he did. For You know, as far as trying to kill David. He made apologies for it. David let Saul know how close he was and what he could have done to him. The scriptures actually tell us that David's men said, you know what? God has put Saul right in front of you so you can get rid of your worst enemy. Really? What did David do? What did David say? When you observe the scriptures, that's what we're supposed to do. Dig a little deeper. I had to think of that song that some of these southern gospel quartet sing. Dig a little deeper. You know, in God's love, what do you find? The nuggets of gold. What did David say to his soldier? Amen, brother. Can you imagine David is, I mean, he cut off the man's garment, part of his coat. And his soldier says, man, oh, just kill him he's right there David says can't he's God's anointed a few chapters later David gets the opportunity to kill Saul again but he refuses. this time I want to illustrate something. David's army is camped in the desert. David and Abish Abish I think it is David's second in command sneak. Past the outer circle of soldiers. Now they're out in the desert. We were in Israel, where we actually saw some of the holes or the caves in the in the hills where David would have hid from Saul. They're still there today, right? But here, Saul is camped out in the desert, and his soldiers are all arrayed around him. In other words, the one writer, Philip Keller, said it would have been like. His soldiers were stationed around him, so it would have looked like spokes in a wheel. Saul was in the middle. Who was Saul's commander? Abner, right. And I, I just had my, my memory refreshed too. All right. What does David do? Him and Abishai sneak, right the outer ring of soldiers, and they go right into Saul, and they get his what? That's interesting, isn't it? What else did they get? Two things. Pardon? The water pitcher. This probably didn't look like Saul's water pitcher, but this is what I brought along. Now, I want you to observe something. I want you to think about something. Saul has his all, all his guards around him, soldiers, and David sneaks in and takes this away from Saul. What did David just take? Pardon? Okay, his weapon. What does the weapon represent? David just took Saul's protection that's the nugget of gold when we observe the scriptures I mean here's Saul and his army of 3,000 men and he done lost his weapon man he is a target for what do you want to call it right now let's take it one step further David gets this What does this represent, maybe? Observing the scriptures? Life, Life, okay. Why? Josiah, right? I thought you were the one who answered. Why does this represent life to to Saul? You are exactly right. Saul and his men were in the desert, the backside of the desert, down towards the Dead Sea, and it is desert back there. Now, if you don't have water, you're not going to last long, and if you don't have this... You're not going to last long. Boys, good. I hit, hit my head with that side, and not the other side. I'd be calling Ken and Josiah here to help me out. Okay, I'll lay it down. <laughs> you under? You see what I'm trying to say? David took his protection, and David basically took his life away from him. And then he went out on the hill the next morning, and he cries out to Abner. This is just. I just refreshed my memory on this stuff a lot just in the last day or so. Like I said, I didn't have work, and so I was going back and and, and really looking into this thing. David goes out on the hill and he cries, Abner, Abner, Abner says, oh, what, what, what? And then Saul, I think, must say, boy, that that voice sounds familiar. What's up? (laughs) David says, hey, man, look what I got. No, you didn't. Yes, I did sword and this is Saul's little water pitcher or canteen I don't know what that does to you but I get goosebumps I'm serious and David's right hand man says you know what if you just give me three seconds not even that much I will take this and stab it through Saul's rest and pin him to the ground. That's what it says in the scriptures. My version of it. Or I can take this and in a matter of a second or so, I can chop his head off. Just like you cut off Goliath's head. And he will, your enemy will be gone. What did David say? Jonathan, what did David say? I think you said it the other time. Do it. Can't harm the Lord's anointed. He said, do not destroy him. You dare not stretch your hand against God's anointed anointed one and be guiltless. That's how serious David took this thing. So when you read the scriptures, uh, that was maybe a long, well, it was, there was a lot in there but I just wanted us to see what happens when you look at some of these scriptures and you really observe what is there. And like I said, I, I've read that book there by David, uh, David there by uh, Philip Keller, and it's just shed a whole new light on this thing. But I wanna encourage you, you know, and, and, and we have to be careful. I've used Bible st- but, you know, uh, studies and when I was in the ministry and still do sometimes. Use Bible helps. <laughs> to to understand what a scripture said. And there's men there that are very educated with the culture and the the setting. And sometimes I kind of hate to say this because when we were in Israel, it's like someone would say it almost makes the black and white Bible go into living color. It does because you understand the setting and the culture. But you know what? You can learn some of that stuff from reading books, from reading the Bible too. But when you see the city of Jerusalem and you see the walls around it, on a Wednesday afternoon, we had off. We, were, we had some free time. And I remember there was a fellow there from Alaska. His name was Stephen. And he had been there a number of times before with some of his family members. He said, Stephen, what are you going to do on Wednesday afternoon? I was scheduled to preach when we come home. So I thought, well, I better start studying my message, you know. He said, I'm going to walk on top of the walls around part of the city of Jerusalem. I said, really? He goes, yeah, you're allowed to do that. Certain parts of it, not all of it because it's in four different sections, and the Arabs don't want you walking on top of the wall in their section. The Jews don't mind. So he knew which gate to go through to get on top of the wall and walk around part of the way and get back off. Tell you what, that was an experience. Being on the walls of Jerusalem, looking out into the new city of Jerusalem, but also looking inside the old city of Jerusalem. give you an example. You remember when Jesus was on trial and the religious leaders didn't want a riot to start because there was probably literally hundreds if not thousands of Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover if you see the streets in Jerusalem and how narrow they are so narrow that you can't drive a car through I mean two cars beside each other you would understand why they didn't want a riot to happen (laughs) there would have been total chaos seriously but you can go in and get you can You know, go to a library or even, you know, books that will tell you things about Jerusalem, tell you things about Israel, and give you the setting. And, uh, yeah, it was was very, very interesting. So if you ever have a chance to go to Israel, go. So what do you have deserved? The sword was his protection, and the jug was his survival, like I said. Saul was demonstrating what? With all his anger, with all his emotional upheaval and everything. Saul was really demonstrating to his people that he was leading, that he couldn't be trusted. What was David demonstrating? What do we observe in David's life? Marvin said something about it was hard for David to sit back until it was the right timing, and I didn't know this. I'll be honest; I did not know this until just when I was studying this. How long was it from the time David was anointed until he became king? Anyone? My guess. You're allowed to. Anyone? Uh, I don't think so. Not quite. I thought it was six. Okay, well, <laughs> you put a two in front of yours, and Matt, and Matt left a zero off. Now, if I understand it correctly, it was six years from time that David was anointed until he became king. So now you know, you know some of the turmoil that he went through, or maybe David didn't go through the turmoil, but how you would say, the difficulty of trying to know how, I don't know if I can get the right words. You know, he knew he was going to be king, But Saul was this thorn in the flesh till he got there, wasn't he? I mean, in a serious way, if you see some of the stuff that took place. I mean, how would you like to have the king throw a spear at you and the king try to kill you and get rid of you before you're even a king and you were anointed to become the king, the next one after Saul? So you see what's happening here when you observe that? Just the whole thing of, of what the scriptures do. So as you observe or as you read the scriptures observe what's being said number 1 and we're going to hear more about this tomorrow too the context what well, why is this verse here why did god or whoever wrote exodus there but i mean i believe god inspired the person to write this about the gener- i mean the iniquity of the Fathers from the second, and third, and fourth generation. Why did they put that right in the middle of the Ten Commandments? Ray, did you say that it's a couple other places in the scripture? I didn't look it up. I'm I'm sorry. I I should have maybe even looked it up where else it was. But, you know, that's the case. Why was it right in the middle of the Ten Commandments? Well, it's between the second and third one. But, you know, when we see the Ten Commandments on the wall, we don't see that part about the iniquity of the children. I mean, the fathers being passed on to the third and fourth generation and God's mercy that is there for those who keep his commandments. So number one, we need to note note the context. Note the setting. Did it take place at the Sea of Galilee? Did it take place in Jerusalem? Did it take place in Capernaum, along the Sea of Galilee? Where did this incident take place? All right? And then what were the people that were around Jesus? What were the people that were around uh, Elijah? And so on and so forth. I will tell you one thing when you go to Israel, one thing that's very disappointing, is when you get to a major place of an event, there's usually a cathedral or a mosque or synagogue or something there, and sometimes you just I tell people you have to just move that aside, like at the Mount of Beatitudes, you can stand there at the Mount of the Beatitudes and look down across the Sea of Galilee, and it's, it's a beautiful picture. I can just, you kind of let your imagination go, that The acoustics were perfect because as Jesus spoke to literally hundreds of people, his voice carried down towards the Sea of Galilee. So you just got to move those things aside that are there and visualize what took place. But there is one thing when we were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, our tour guide says this is one of those pinch me, am I really type of experiences because you can't build a mosque or a cathedral or something out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It just doesn't work. But you're on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. That's pretty incredible. So dig deeper for the nuggets of gold. I'm just going to touch on Joseph's life a little bit due to the lack of time. But there's another person. I, when I was in the ministry, I preached a series on Joseph's life. You know, his brothers sold him. They hated him because of coat, money, color. No, because of his dreams more than anything else. He was the dreamer. And because of his father's partiality towards him and his coat of many colors, they, they hated him all the more. So Joseph experienced, you know, he was betrayed. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife for having an affair with her. And, you know, she tried to grab him, and he took off and left his coat there. And he was forgotten by the butler, and he was misused. And you go back into to Genesis chapter 50, uh, right in the end of it there, verse 20. Listen to this. I'm going, no, I'm going to ask you, what do you observe in Joseph's life right in the very end? How did he respond to this whole thing? Anyone? I'll start it out. But as for you. All right. Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. As to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people. just a tip of what happened in Joseph's life. Don't judge people by what you observe sometimes in the outside. You know it's a little bit like the scriptures. You you can read it and you know if I'll I'll be honest there's times I've read the Bible and I'm thinking when I got interrupted by a thought that went through my mind and I had to go back and read it again. Or Satan doesn't want us to know what the truth is. Satan doesn't want us to observe those special things. Satan doesn't want us to to know what some of those nuggets of gold are. And this happened a number of years ago, quite a few years ago. I was at another place, and I would ask to preach that one Sunday morning. I'm not sure what the message was I was going to preach, but... It was one of those times when I felt the powers of darkness more than I believe I ever did before. Satan doesn't like it when we look into this word and dig deeper and observe what it really says. The true nugget of gold may just be under the surface. When reading God's word, observe what it says and how it applies to you. I have one more story I'm going to share. Some of you have heard it. It's about the balloon salesman that was at the carnival, and he was selling balloons, and he was selling helium balloons, which are the ones that have the gas inside them and it makes them, lets them go up in the air. So he would be selling balloons, and business got a little slow, so he left the green balloon go, and things picked up for a little while. And uh, after a while, business got slow, so then he left a yellow balloon go up off, went up in the air. Business picked up for a little bit, and then after a while, when it slowed down, he left the red balloon go up. Things got better for a little bit, and after a while, he felt a little tug on his leg, and he looked down, and a little black boy was standing there. little black boy looked up and said, Mr., if you let the black balloon go, would it go up? And the man, in his godly wisdom, looked down and said, Son, it's not what's on the outside that makes the balloon go up what's on the inside that makes it go up so brothers let's dig deeper find out what's on the inside and even when you meet somebody new many times there's something a whole lot more here than what you can see on the outside